Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is intended to educate as well as entertain, and it has a more serious purpose. We are big supporters of the Financial Times Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, a new charity which you can check out on ft.com forward slash FLIC. It's the most disadvantaged in society who often get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans, and similar artful devices to part people with their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This really is a great cause, and I urge you, please, to support it. The podcast is sponsored by Sentio, and I ask them because I use the research platform almost every day. For equity analysts, it's in many respects the ideal tool. If I didn't have a professional platform, I would need several different software systems. Sentio saves me a lot of time and ensures my research can be done in one place. I like it because first, the data is reliable and it aggregates all content. Second, it's easy to use and much more intuitive than some other platforms. Third, it's features I have never seen in other systems. My favorite is the ability to go into 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do this, I snap my fingers without having to dig through multiple 10Ks. It's much faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge price advantage over other systems. If you're a smaller fund or even a larger fund equipping analysts, Sentio is definitely worth looking at. Visit sentio.com forward slash BTBS for Behind the Balance Sheet for more details. In this episode, I'm joined by Chris Pavese, the President and CIO of Broyhill Asset Management. He's a seriously thoughtful investor. He trained as an architect and we talk about how investing straddles both left and right brain thinking. Roy Hill is based in the south of the US in the Blue Ridge Mountains, a beautiful part of the country. We talk about the north-south divide in Europe and the US. Warning, if you're English, you might not like some of my comments from the perspective of a Scot. But we had a really interesting discussion about whether the advantages of being located outside the bustling environment of New York or London will continue to confer the same benefits in the days of Zoom, or whether it might be an even bigger advantage. Royal is a book club, and we talk about the benefits and indeed the joy of reading widely. Chris explains his investment philosophy and why he has fewer than 20 stocks in his portfolio. He explains why the only research he buys is from a short seller, even though he doesn't short. For me, this is a really enjoyable discussion. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Chris, hi, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Steve. Oh, no, not at all. 
So, Luke, um, at one point, you had planned to be an architect, and you even did some time in a Frank Lloyd Wright building. So how come you ended up as an investor? Yeah, it's uh, it's a good question, um, and one I've talked about a bit more recently, and um, I think a Several years ago, I'd actually written a piece comparing, um, you know, the architectural process with the investment process. Um, obviously, very different roles, but I think there's a lot of similarities. Um, you know, the, the the short version is, um, you know, I was two years into a five-year architecture program, um, undergraduate program at Penn State. Um, was loving it. Although, you know, it was, I mean, that program, I don't know if you remember any architecture students in an undergrad or graduate program, but we basically lived at the studio. I mean, I remember spending, you know, one stretch 36 to 48 hours or more straight in the studio, you know, during finals, um, you know, ordering food, sleeping under the desk, et cetera. Um, so, like investing, it's it's a it's a it's a business and a, and a and a and a career that I think you have to actually you know deeply deeply love and be passionate about to succeed, and and I did. Um, but like I said, two years in, I came to the realization that I could graduate with an undergrad in architecture, go back to school for another two years for a master's, and then seven years, um, you know, have both an undergraduate and, and graduate degree in architecture. Or I could switch over, do four years in business slash finance, um, develop somewhat of a business understanding, um, and then go back for three years for a master's in architecture and have two degrees in that same seven years. You know, life just kind of gets in the way of plans occasionally. And it was, you know, this was the late 90s. Markets were booming. Um, you know, I've, I've always kind of straddled, um, I guess, both what you'd call like left brain and right brain thinking, right? There's there's a, a good piece of me that enjoys the sort of creative element of design, both architectural and, and investing design and process, as well as sort of the more scientific and mathematical process. Um, and I just decided to, uh, to to make the jump over what seemed like a more academic and financial and mathematical career, but I think it I think investing re requires just as much creativity um, as any architectural um, career would require. It's just applied uh, maybe slightly differently. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because I've always described myself as creative, and my wife kind of laughs, but I, I think. Um, investing and analysis is a creative endeavor. I mean, I don't know that it's as creative as architecture because I remember I did a project, uh, a loft apartment in, in, in London on the river with a, a very famous London-based architect. He might not be famous in the United States, but a guy called Seth Stein. And um, I remember when he came up with the drawings, it was like, how could he visualize this from an empty box. And I, I remember asking him, what will this look like from when I'm sitting here? How will that? And he drew all these little drawings. And when I actually moved in, I looked at the drawings and he, it was exactly the way he had envisaged it. So I think, you know, architecture is, I mean, I think in, investing is creative, but architecture, I think, is a creative at the next level. But listen, you um, moved to Broyhill. And you think you went there as CIO after five years as a PM at JP Morgan and one year as an associate before that. So you must have joined there when you were quite young. And I was wondering, what 
what was it that they saw in you that enabled them to trust you when you were relatively young with relatively limited experience? Because that, that's family wealth, right? It's quite a brave and, and I mean, for you, quite a, a heavy burden, I would have imagined. Yeah, uh, and not to mention a little bit of a culture shock moving from uh, you know, Midtown Manhattan to, to what I lovingly refer to as uh, Mayberry, North Carolina. Um, that, that reference may, may not uh, carry a whole lot of weight in, in uh, across the pond, but um, you know, just just uh, think of a sleepy, you know, what people would call a, a one-stoplight type of town in, in uh, the middle of the, or at the base of the, the foothills of the mountain, Appalachian Mountains in North Carolina. Um, so it was a bit of a transition. I've asked myself that, Steve, a, a number of questions. Why a uh, you know conservative, long you know family with this rich Southern history would would be comfortable with a you know Italian a, a, a young Italian kid that grew up in New Jersey and and worked in New York? And you know, I'm still reminded that I'm I'm the uh, damn Yankee in the office, which again may not translate across the pond, but uh, for clarification, right, a, a Yankee is a, is a northerner that moves into the south. A damn Yankee is one that doesn't move back. And so uh, <laughs> I'm reminded of that on a regular basis. Um, yeah, it was just, you know, I, I think we just we just hit it off. Um, you know, like I was I started started my career at JPM in 98 left in 05. So I guess that's about seven years at, at JPM. You know, at the time, Morgan was this boutique investment bank with a storied history. Um, at the time I joined, I think JPM had maybe 10, 12,000 employees and maybe a dozen portfolio managers at the bank. You know, shortly after I joined, there was the merger with Chase. Shortly after that, there was a merger with Bank One that, of course, brought Jamie Dimon into the fold. Um, and so the organization changed dramatically. I'm not sure what the employee count is today, but it's somewhere in the hundreds of thousands, not not anywhere near 10,000. Morgan at the time had a, had a phenomenal um, investment management training program, learned a ton those first few years. Uh, and this was, you know, as you know, a, a, a much different world than it is today. I, I think, you know, Late '90s, early 2000s, uh, you know, most of the learning at any organization you're at, you know, came from intern, you know, came internally. You know, we had no blogs, we had no Substack. Um, you read other research publications, right? But the the amount of knowledge distributed today and that we have access today is just really unparalleled. Um, so back then, I was fortunate to learn from a from a strong organization, um, but felt like you know I'd soaked up everything I could possibly soak up at the bank, and was was ready to to try something new and expand my horizons. And there was an opportunity there was an op opportunity to do so with the Broyhill family, and you know. We're we're almost twenty years later today, and I'm I'm still here. I'm still enjoying the ride just as much as I did day one. Well, that, that's that's fantastic. Uh, you'll be amused to hear that um, J.P. Morgan bought Chase shortly after Chase bought a small Scottish um, merchant bank, originally Scottish, based in London, Robert Fleming. And um, I was yep. I was at Robert Fleming, and you know Chase took us over and. It was it was really good fun. I mean, I I, went, I was in the Chase offices in New York the day the, the deal actually closed. And um, when J.P. Morgan took over, there was all this you know maneuvering because of course J.P. Morgan had a research department. This was a Southside Bank. I was in Robert Fleming. We had a Southside Bank. Chase had a couple of analysts. And so there was all this jockeying as there is when you're putting two 
businesses together. And um, originally it seemed that I was going to be binned. And I managed to get myself in a position where they decided not to bin me. And um, then the week before, they decided to fire not just me, but every director of Chase Stroke Robert Fleming. And um, it was very funny. I mean, the, the whole experience was very funny. But the funniest thing was that there was one guy that they didn't fire. And he was based in Edinburgh. Because what they'd done was they decided who they were going to fire by looking at the floor plan. And he, he didn't have a desk in London. And they didn't realise that he worked from the Edinburgh office. They didn't even realise that any there were any others in, in, in the Edinburgh office. So that, you know, the well-executed plans of a smooth machine like J.P. Morgan, I'm sure it'd be much better under Jamie Dimon, but um, don't hold your breath. The, the, and I should say, you know, although I'm based in, in London, um, the people that listen to this podcast, they're astonishingly, I mean, much to my amazement, the podcast has been downloaded in over 100 countries. So, but the explanation about the North and South of the United States is always helpful because the North and South of every country are remarkably different, particularly in Europe and particularly in the UK, because I'm from Scotland, which is a superior country, but I live in England with the English is, you know, but I mean, the, the thing about the Americas is kind of the other way around, isn't it? Because the people in the South are nicer than the people in the North, whereas in, in the UK, the people in Scotland are nicer than the people in England. Is that, that's right, yeah? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bite my tongue there, and I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'm gonna plead the fifth on, on that comment, Steve. But yeah, oh, I mean, all this sort of marketing type blurb that you produce, um, you know, Broyle is always talking about the Blue Ridge Mountains. I mean, I, I I've actually been I've, I'm well traveled in the United States, funnily enough. So I've actually been to the Blue Ridge Mountains. I spent a very happy weekend in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which I guess isn't far from you. But I mean, why why is it good to be an investor in that sort of environment? Is it just because you're far away from the noise of New York and the bustle and the and the short termism and the hustle? Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a great question um, and one that I've thought about a lot since since joining Broy Hill um, and more as I've matured. As you as you said, when I, I was late twenties when I moved when I, I was in my late twenties when I made the move down here. You know, looking back, I don't know that I could do my job as well as um, as well as we do if I was in New York twenty four seven. I love going back. You know, I, I, I plug in um, to New York and other large cities and, and you know financial centers regularly throughout the year. But it's just it's just so nice and, and so valuable to be able to unplug as well, decompress. And really, just kind of truly, you know, think independently about sort of what you took in, what you learned, or what you thought you might have learned, um, and process that information. I feel like, you know, in New York and and probably many other cities, it's just, you know, the focus is on the next week, the next quarter, the next month, and you know, every the noise is the noise is deafening, and it's repetitive, and it's hard to run into people that don't have the same view or or you know, aren't, aren't sort of beating the same drums all the time. And so, uh, you know, I think, I think being away from that, being a, removed from that intentionally, uh, it, for us anyway, right? I mean, every, every investor is different. Every investor, you know, there's a lot of ways to make money in the market. I, I think a lot of this business is finding out what works for you and what works for your investors and sticking with it. And, 
this works for us, right? For other firms to, you know, being close to that information and being that tuned in on a daily basis or even minute to minute is important for us as a, as a distraction. Um, do you think and that, I think, sorry, I was just going to ask, but do you think that's changed post COVID? Do you think your relative advantage is eroded a bit as more people work from home and there's more distance or do you think it, it would still be yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of it is just right. It's it's also it's it's distance geographically, right? But it's also distance mentally, and it's just sort of a, a different psychological and analytical framework and behavioral framework. Um, and you know, some people are you know people are just programmed different than others, and we just tend to prefer, you know we just tend to do better sort of out here on our own. Um, we'll see how the whole COVID you know work from home thing plays out over time i wouldn't be surprised if in a few years right and particularly as the as the economy changes and and potentially employers gain more um you know get some leverage back over employees we start seeing people coming back into the cities and coming back into the office and and really firms demanding people back in the office but we'll see no, so, I mean, it's interesting. We get that here, you know, um, if you speak to investors in Scotland, not that there's that many of them left, but they feel, you know, when I was on the south side, when I started in the industry, there was a, you know, there was a different environment when you went to Edinburgh than there was, you know, in, in London. So I, I, I think there is a distance. Although, honestly, I wonder why, because if you're in London or if you're in New York, you've got the advantage that they've got all these companies coming through, for example. Whereas if you're yeah. in North Carolina, you know, I don't know, you know, companies coming through New York aren't necessarily going to come and come and see you. Now that may be there in a in a Zoom-based world, that's less of a disadvantage, I imagine. But the, there's also the, the, you know, why would that not be an advantage? You know, if you're in New York and you can see that company next week and you don't have to make the effort of phoning them, you can actually be in the room with them. That's a lot better than not having that opportunity. And I, but I know what you mean, because people do get caught up in the short term and, and there's, a, there's an awful lot of mingling. And you think, do you think part of it is the fact that investors are talking to each other more and they're in the same room and they get caught up in the same things? You think it's easier to distance yourself if you're physically distant? I think I think absolutely, but I also think the point you made in terms of access is an important one, right? And that's clearly a trade-off we're consciously making and comfortable making. But it's also, I feel like you can still get that by plugging in when you need to, right? You you may miss, like, there's no shortage of ideas, right? We don't have a problem coming up with ideas to to track down and hunt down, right? It's really the the bigger problem is is creating the right filter. Um, and so, right, you don't have to meet with or necessarily should meet with everyone coming through all the time because it, it's, you know, I kind of look at that as almost like email, right? If you're if you're spending all day in your inbox, right, you're managing other people's priorities rather than your own. And I guess I could see the same thing as if you're in New York, right? If your inbox is constantly filled up, um, you know, it, it, literally and figuratively with people wanting to come in and meetings and people coming in to see you, um, you know, that's different than being selective and handpicking, okay, like I need to spend time here. Let's go out and spend a week visiting these companies, visiting, right, or head out to this conference or, you know, this or that and spend a day talking to these businesses, these companies, these investors, and sort of doing it on our, on our schedule as opposed to theirs. 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, I, my background is I was a global investor. So, you know, sitting in London, when you had, you know, a lot of companies from overseas coming through, it was quite helpful because it meant you didn't need to travel as much going out yeah. and you just get a flavor of what was going on in different parts of the world. And of course, there's no pressure on you to take a meeting. You know, you you know that company's in town. If you want to see them, you can see them. If you don't want to see them, you can't. But it's, it's an interesting um issue about you know that distance and that separation and you know the extent to which it does enable you to take a more balanced longer term easier view i don't i mean i don't have a strong feeling about it and i suspect that the fact that you can now zoom have a zoom call with a company makes it a lot yeah it makes everything a lot easier you don't need to go to new york or london or hong kong or wherever well not hong kong of course not. Now, I was reading your 2021 letter and you write really, really well. And I thought it was very funny because you were talking about monkeys throwing darts and you wrote a dart throwing chimp will occasionally hit a bullseye. But as much as you might like to think so, that doesn't make him the next Warren Buffett of dart throwing, whoever that is. Now, I should interject you. I know you're American, so you may not be aware that there is a world darts championship which is held like half an hour away from me. Peter Wright is the current champion. I had to look that up. But you you say, you go on to say, we see a lot of dart throwing chimps in this market as the majority of investors managing capital today have yet to experience a protracted downturn. So what I want to ask you is, did the meme stocks, the bull market geniuses, the, the Twitterati talking about Zoom being a great company, did that get to you a little bit? Because it, it kind of got to me a little bit because I was thinking, man, these people do not know what they're doing and they're, they're, you know, people think they're geniuses and when's it all going, I know, I you know, obviously nobody likes a bear market. But I'm kind of pleased that the bubble has been burst. But I mean, how do you, how do you feel about this? Yeah. I mean, I'd be lying if I said it didn't get to us. Right. I mean, I mean, and it wasn't, I mean, the last few years, well, at least uh, up until 2021, were kind of a frenzy accelerated version of what we had been experiencing for the last several years, right? I mean, value investing, conservative investing is underperformed growth or more, right? Or more aggressive styles investing for the better part or more of the last decade. So it's been a, it's been a long slug for investors like us, you know, like I was going to say, like many investors today, but the reality is there, there aren't, I would say the majority of investors, they probably haven't lived through a number, you know, a variety of different cycles, let's say. Um, and, you know, what we saw today was very similar to what we saw in the late nineties, in our opinion. And I think, I think the folks that got caught up on this are probably the folks that didn't live through that. It's one thing to read about history. It's another to actually experience it, right? Like you can, you can spend as much time as you want in school, learning about finance and learning about how to value a security. But until you actually buy those shares and live through, you know, those shares being cut in half, you know, the behavioral aspect of investing is just a, it's a completely different game. And it's something that just, you know, you learn over time. You know, there's so many great quotes from the late nineties. Um, you know, I, I, I would say and to put this in perspective, I think it was like in our 17 or 18 letter, we had a long excerpt where we were quoting Julian Robertson's final letter to investors while he was shutting down Tiger Global, right? So like we were making these comparisons to the nineties for the last several years. Um, 
which also is not unusual, right? I, I think it was, what was it? Was it 96 when Greenspan came out and coined the term irrational exuberance, right? So that was, I mean, he was four or five years ahead of the top. You had another, right? And really the last two were the most spectacular in terms of gains for NASDAQ and Nernet, which is exactly what we saw here. The last one or two were the most spectacular for the meme stocks and for the Twitter audio. That's a great term, by the way, Steve. Um, so it was frustrating. Um, you know, it was, um, a little bit easier for us to stomach as you know we were still able to make money during those markets there was a lot of um you know what we call statistical value investors that had just sort of stuck to buying low pe low priced book stocks that um you know some of which lost a lot of assets both in terms of performance and clients over those years leading up to the market top you know we want to be in a position to you know in an ideal scenario to make a little bit of money in many market environments, right? Whether we're in a complete, you know, risk on, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater or just kind of throw darts at the board and anything works. We want to be able to make a little bit money in those types of markets. And we want to be able to make money in markets like we've seen over the last six months. And it, it's a little bit easier to, to sort of stick with it if you're making money. Although it, like you said, it's still, it's never fun making less when, you know, than everybody else around you, especially when you feel and are confident that everyone else around you or a good portion of the folks around you getting rich are doing so for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I think that, I think there's sort of an intellectual dishonesty sometimes about people um, in these markets. And I I don't know, I mean, I think every um, serious investor Wonders. Yeah, um, yeah I, I had a conversation by email with a, somebody I know that I'm actually invested in um, his fund through a structure. And um, they, he, he was writing about his terrible relative performance last year. And this is a brilliant investor. And he was kind of beating himself up because he, you know, he hadn't beaten the market. And I said, if you'd beaten the market, I'd be wanting to take my money out. Yeah. And, you know, right. <laughs> And of course, now um, right. you know, that these people are all um, recovering relative, although obviously when the stock market goes down, it's more painful. I mean, I loved it in the letter you, you mentioned that Kathy Wood still manages more money than David Einhorn. I mean, how long will that carry on? Because David Einhorn seems to me, so this, these are the, I mean, you picked exactly the right example. David was in London about a month ago, and um, I went along. Um, I was somebody kindly invited me to the presentation he was doing. I went along, and, you know, chatted to him. He's an incredibly smart, incredibly thoughtful um, investor, and it, it's kind of bizarre to me that you know he has to fly to London to look for you know investors, and Kathy Wood just has to tweet, and people give her money. I mean, I, I, I it seems well, it- unjust, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we just—I just sent something around to the team yesterday. Um, I mean, the Arc Innovation ETF, which is sort of their flagship product, which is still you know north of nine billion in assets today. They've seen inflows for eight straight days today. So, like, and you know, and so I, I want to say it's you know it was north of six hundred million in inflows in the last week or two. So the fact that like. Despite being down, I'm not even sure how much at this point, investors are still plowing money into that fund. And really, that's just a proxy, right, for just the entire speculative corner of the market. I, I think is a big is a big warning sign, right? That we're nowhere near to the washout we need, right? Like even, even 2008, 
uh, well, of course, you know, 2020 COVID bear market lasted all the few weeks. I mean, it was one of the, the most severe declines, certainly that we've ever seen or experienced, but even in history, right? It was, I mean, just the, 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 how quickly the markets dropped. I mean, it was just relentless day after day after day, and they were big declines, but the trip back was just as fast, if not faster. So you really didn't wash out any of the sort of speculative excesses that we had in the market up to this point. And in fact, we just amplified them over the next 12 to 18 months. 08 was, um, you know, was a, it took a little bit longer, right? But it was still, um, you know, it was still a very sharp rebound. And really, it was a very sharp downfall. I mean, we were kind of, you know, treading water up to the Lehman event, right? But beyond that, you know, and then after that, it was straight down from end of September through March, which is you know, not, you know, in hindsight, a great length of time for, for sentiment to really shift and for sort of that new generation of investors to kind of step in. Um, contrast that to, you know, what, what the markets went through in the 70s or even in the early 2000s, right? I mean, it was, it was a grueling bear market. It was death by a thousand cuts from 2000 to 2002. And so by the time, you know, the day traders back in 98, 99, you know, maybe after year, after the first six months, first 12 months, like they were probably still doing what investors are doing today. And that looking at every down drop, you know, every down day as, a, as an opportunity to step in and throw more money at it. And every time the market started rallying, they were worrying about missing it and plow back in, you know, and that happened for three years until investors said, okay, this isn't working anymore. I give up. I want nothing to do with the market. And that sets the, set the stage, right, for, for one of the greatest bull markets in, in history over the next really 20 years. It was briefly interrupted in 08. But outside of that, like that, that 20 year stretch was one of the best in terms of uh, the, you know, annual caker over the long term for the market. I think you need to see that type of washout. Um, to set a to set a foundation for for growth going forward, and I think that's just going to take time. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the, the Twitter crowd. You can see it right in the commentary on Twitter, and the fact that folks are just they've not changed their tune. They've not given up. You know, the stocks that we're trading. You know, stocks are cheap at ten times sales, but that's because they traded at fifty to eighty times sales six to twelve months ago. You know, ten times sales historically has not been a. Uh, you know, it's, it's probably been more of a top than a bottom. Um, you know, and, and the fact that we're looking at it today as a as a potential you know indicator that that stocks are getting cheap. Um, you know, and, and every company different. You know, using a multiple of sales isn't the best. I don't think it's the best metric. It's a shortcut in a lot of ways. But um, you know, different businesses deserve. Um, you know, there may be some that that deserve to trade at ten times sales, but. Um, not the quantity they're trading there today or were trading there six months ago. You know, I can remember um, being asked to be the cornerstone investor in a new IPO, a very interesting company when I was at the hedge funds. And um, I, I asked them, what, and they, I mean, this isn't recently, you know, this is a long time ago. And they, they told me the, the valuation and I said, well, that would be 10 times sales. And they said, yeah. And I said, I, <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're thinking about, Five times sales, I might look at it, but at 10 times sales, forget it. And of course, it came to the stock market, went up, and then you know fell by 80%. But the, the, it's interesting that you, you make this point because this um, the calibration, people are still sort of anchored on that high, and they haven't yet sort of really sort of re-examined what the valuation 
should be. So they're not, they're, you know, they're they're not looking back over a long enough horizon. They're just looking back over a very short term and not really thinking about what valuation might be in the longer term. And obviously, we're at a we're at a juncture where we don't know where interest rates are going to top out. So you know the you know there's a certain I had a certain amount of sympathy when interest rates were zero as the people paying up a lot for assets because what you know how else where else do you you know do you invest and i guess we get to that point again but i wonder if we have to find you know some you know more real levels i mean you i don't like to talk too much about sort of current prices and current market levels because i think that makes the a podcast very have a very short time value, and I kind of like to do sort of more longer term um, thinking. But I just was curious because back in um, August of 2020, you were quoted saying markets could be trading at half these levels in a year or two, and S and P then was about where it is now. I mean, if you were interviewed now, would you still say that? If if you looked at well, let, let me preface this by saying, Steve, um, you know the the stock market is one thing, right? A market of stocks is another, right? And so and so we'll have we we may or may not have views, which may or may not be accurate on where the overall market should trade, regardless of where the overall market should trade, right? Our job is to find good investments and and mispriced mispriced assets, um, but. Could we see the market trade down materially from here, even after the decline we've seen? I mean, the reality is we haven't. The overall market hasn't seen much of a decline. Yeah. Um, the 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 you know the biggest names in the market have just started to crack, right? Like the like Q one of this year. Well, really, the, the most egregious egregious pockets of the market really peaked. Yeah, early to midway through last year, right? So they've really been declining for 12 months now. Um, but the overall market was held up by the largest names in the market, which accounted for you know nearly 30% of the S&P at the peak, which is also a record high and also what you see near cyclical bull market peaks, right? You see an increased concentration driven by increased flows to passive, which drive more concentration, which drive more flows, et cetera. That works on the way down as well, right? When those flows start reversing, those so same names that drove that drove markets higher can drive the markets lower. Yeah, you, know, you think about names like Google, Facebook, Amazon. Um, yeah, you know, we'll take Amazon out for 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 a second, but you know, historically, well, historically, at least as long as they've been around, you know, people haven't really even been able to imagine those advertising business slowing, let alone actually declining year over year. But I mean, if you think about both Google and Facebook, right, they, they make up one, the majority, the, the large majority of the online advertising market Two, right, that market has grown significantly as a share of the overall advertising market. And guess what? Advertising is a cyclical business. Um, when companies go through tough times, they cut advertising and, and, and past cycles, right? Like those, that secular driver moving from offline to online was enough to sort of keep those companies continuing to grow. At some point, they become a large enough piece enough pie, a piece of the pie. When the pie shrinks, they shrink. And so, you know, could you see a shift in sentiment where the multiples on those business go from, you know, where they are today to something substantially lower? Um, you know, I, I was going over some 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 material 
earlier this week and you know it's hard to believe but it wasn't too long ago where like stocks like microsoft well microsoft and apple right were trading at single digit multiples of earnings um you know they were trading north of 30 times right both companies um up until a few months ago i'm not sure exactly where they stand today um i would argue those businesses haven't changed much right it's just kind of what people have been willing to pay for those businesses have changed and so could we get back to a situation where right the sentiment shifts again um you know apple takes a wrong step somewhere they have a bust of a product and all of a sudden people assume that um you know they've lost its mojo and um yeah they're never going to create another iphone and game's over and um you know, it, it, it's tough to sort of, again, step out of sort of consensus and kind of look at, you know, contrary or uh, contrary factuals, right? Like what, what could possibly happen? The Apple's um, a good example, actually, because, you you know, if you think about, I mean, you know, my perception is that we're going into much more difficult economic times. And if we're going into much more difficult economic times, well, you know, luxury products, yeah, luxury, luxury, and luxury for you and me i mean are we going to be rushing out to buy the newest iphone uh, i wonder um seems slightly bizarre to me nobody's ever said that you know tim cook's not steve jobs and um you know i mean i know i mean he's done a, you know a brilliant job but it seems that nobody can say anything bad about any of these companies and it, there's a very unbalanced debate i think is yeah. my observation but let's, let's not um let's look a bit longer term i've been doing a few podcasts this year just talking to a lot of macro type commentators and talking about okay so we've had 40 years of falling interest rates and we know that that's not going to happen for the next 40 years obviously from our starting point it can't be can do obviously we've got all the issues of inflation and everything else so i was saying well you know What's worked in the last 40 years probably isn't going to work any longer. And so you need to think a bit differently. And I'd, I'd like to get your perspective on that, partly as a stock picker and partly because you also do things beyond stocks, right? So um, can I just, I've got three sort of issues about this. Let me, the first one is about you've talked about value beating growth by 16% per annum, I think it was, for five years after the tech boom. Is this, you know, what we should expect over the next few years. And you also talked in your letter about your portfolio having a bit more rotation of late. One of the things I wonder is, are we going to be have to be a bit more nimble in the next few years? So say the market is the same level in 10 years time, which I think is, you know, wouldn't be an unreasonable assumption. Yeah. Does that mean that we're going to have to, you know, find this special situation watch it go up, then find something else. And I mean, are we going to have to play through a different playbook? Um, so that's an interesting question. Um, so a couple things there, Steve. Um, and one, I, I think, let me back up to your um, last question too. Um, I mean, that's a good differentiator, right? So like, if you look at something like the Schiller PE, right, earnings on 10-year trailing basis, I mean, we've come down from nosebleed levels to... I mean, I think we're still near 30 times trailing 10-year earnings, right? Versus, you know, long-term average, I don't know, call it 16, 17, 18, if you want to give you know, market credit for a rising trend. So, you know, and as you know, right, like markets 
are like rubber bands, and this and this works for markets overall, but also also individual stocks where you know you move from one extreme to another. You rarely go from one extreme back to average. Average is created by periods above average and periods of below average. And so if you're trading, you know, at a, at a record extreme above average, you know, you're probably not going to stop it at trend or, or long-term average. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean, and this uh, just quick um, circling back to your last question before moving on to this one, that markets need to be cut in half today or over the next year. Like you said, they could be flat. You know, we could just go nowhere for a while with a lot of volatility. And that's another way where you get back to average. Um, that also, to your point, right, it is a much different environment that most investors have seen over the last 10 years and for most of the last 20 years. Yeah. One of the questions we've asked ourselves numerous times over that period was, you know, and you've seen a generation of investors grow up under the under the understanding that if you buy a good company, you don't have to worry about ever selling it. You can own it forever because good companies only go up in prices, right? And it doesn't, and there's no too high a price, right, for a great business. That was really just more a relic of the market we were in, right? Like, and people have learned that lesson over and over again through history, um, and we've forgotten it over and over again through history. And uh, to your point, yeah, I, th I think I think understanding the market regime and the market environment that we're in should inform how you shape and construct portfolios. You know, we were slow to learn, um, you know, an important lesson over the years, and still, you know, still learning an important lesson where, like. I think you need to differentiate upfront when you own an asset, um, what type of asset it is, right? So we own, a, 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 I'll give you an example of a couple of mistakes we've made in the past to, to illustrate this. But, you know, we owned both Microsoft and Apple at single digit multiples of earnings and sold both for phenomenal gains a year or two later and gave up multiples of those phenomenal gains over the next several years, right? That was a, a, probably one of the most costly mistakes we've made. And that mistake was simply just as opposed to saying, okay, this business is starting to get expensive. It was dirt cheap. Now it's probably fairly priced. We're going to punt this and buy something else that's cheap that's not as great of a business. You know, in hindsight, right, the, the, the lesson to learn there was you want to give those businesses more room to run. You can't own them at any price, right? But but you want to give them more room to run as opposed to other businesses that are just, you know, wildly underpriced, but perhaps lesser quality businesses, right? There, you probably need to sell those businesses as they approach fair value as opposed to holding on and letting that fair value compound for you over time. And so I would say it depends on you know, how you think about and, and how you construct the portfolio as to, you know, what that means for what the portfolio looks like and, and what would, you know, might be a sideways market, right? If you've got, um, if you're, if you're true to your stripes um, and you're buying businesses below fair value and trimming or selling them as they approach fair value or get into, you know, get more and more expensive, um, right? In theory, as markets, like even in a sideways market, you're going you know, let's say we go through a period of a year or two where markets are rallying and getting more expensive, and most of the underlying stocks in those markets are rallying and getting more expensive, then we should be selling those as they get more expensive, which in theory, right, will be increasing our cash position and lowering our equity exposure. And it works on the flip side too, right? Then as markets fall back to nor normal or cheap levels, we should see more opportunities to buy 
even cheaper stocks. And we should be putting some of that cash to work. You know, over the last 10 years, holding cash has, you know, we've been screamed at, yelled at, frowned upon for holding cash. But I think like cash in this type of environment proves its worth very quickly, both in terms of right cushioning some of the volatility that we've seen this year and are likely to continue to see in the future. But it also just provides you with that element, you know, in a market that's not trending one way or another, you know, being able to sell something without having a mandate that forces you to put that cash right back to work just because you know you sold something. I think there's a lot of value in that type of approach. And that's that's frankly how we've how we've always approached the markets. Well, what would be the maximum of cash you would hold? Or does it depend on the market? Yeah, you know, it depends on the market and the mandate. But I mean we've run we've run as high as 40% over the last 10 years. Um, we're not we're not that high today, but it's also yeah you know, that's a function of both top down and bottom up opportunity set. So today, for example, I would say risks are higher than they've been in a very long time. But there's also enough interesting potentially uncorrelated opportunities in the market or less correlated market opportunities in the market where we we would rather hold things like that than hold cash. And there there are a lot of optically cheap stocks around. The one thing that slightly puzzles me at this juncture is we've got over half of economists now forecasting a recession. I don't know what planet the other half are on, but uh, economists are always slightly bizarre. But the analysts don't seem to bother cutting their numbers. I mean, I haven't looked this week, uh, but last time I looked, I, I couldn't see any, you know, the S&P 500 estimate just carried on going up. And I, I'm thinking... You know, there's some disconnect here. Can you make sense of that? Uh, no, although, right, um, I would say economists may be ahead of the game this cycle, and analysts are probably where about where they usually are, right? Uh, um, I'd say the economists are the exception, not necessarily the analysts. Earn- earnings estimates are normally the last to kind of revise down after the companies tell them they need to come down or after they start missing. Um, I mean, and right, we have. It's pretty unusual for economists to to be, you know, for over half of them to be forecasting a recession. I mean, recession. I mean, the you know, recessions aren't usually as well telegraphed. You know, it's not yeah. usually as obvious as it is now. I mean, maybe maybe I'll be wrong. I mean, I I hope I'll be wrong, but it seems to me, you know, there all indicators, all signposts are pointing to a very tough environment. And I, I mean, what the economists who aren't forecasting a recession, I don't quite know what their assumptions would be. But, you know, if analysts, you would imagine, would be looking at this and saying, well, things are not going to be as easy as they have been. And of course, we're coming from historically very high margins and returns in capital. So you imagine that the, there's quite a significant amount of downside in earnings. And of course, uh, particularly in S&P 500, there's quite a lot of leverage. So, you know, there's a, a kind of <laughs> a very unpleasant cocktail uh, around. I mean, I think there's still some good cheap stocks, but I, 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 it just puzzles me slightly that um, the overall appearance of the market is cheaper than it actually is. Yeah, I think it, we would agree um, that earnings are probably the next shoe to drop, yeah. right? And and so investors looking at the market now and saying, you know, and, and sort of quoting it on current earnings or either trailing or forward earnings. Um, you know, it's, you know, the P is corrected, the E hasn't yet. Yeah, no, no. Um, I mean, the other thing that's interesting, and again, it, it seems to us 
that we're headed towards recession. There's enough unknowns and uncertainty and risks on the horizon and risks we're currently dealing with that it's it's hard to imagine that we don't get there and we can debate whether it's a you know just a, a slowdown or or you know the, de- the depths of the reception or, or how big of an issue it is. You know, normally you know one of the things that's interesting is you know so at least in the US, you look at like the Atlanta Fed has the GDP now forecast, which right now is sort of bordering on zero for the current quarter and is sort of fluctuating negative to positive. And so, you know, folks are looking at that. I mean, normally by the time everyone agrees that we're heading for a rest recession, we've we've already been in one for several months. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it doesn't feel like that in the US. Um, you know, consumers are still spending money that we gave out, you know, for the last year or two. But yeah, you know, with housing prices where they are, with what it's cost filling up gas tanks and and put food on the table. It's just it's just hard to see how the average average consumer really anywhere in the world can continue spending like they've been spending. No, I, I mean, the, for the average person, it must be getting increasingly tough. And, you know, this is a terrible thing about inflation because it's a tax on the poor. You know, you and I can manage and cope with the, you know, the additional cost of filling up uh, our cars. Um, but it's the average person who probably needs to drive to work and, who will find it much tougher, which I think is 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 the terrible, sad thing. And um, of course, many people just don't really understand what inflation is. I mean, I've always felt. I mean, although I'm, I know we've been in a disinflationary environment, I've always felt that my personal basket of consumption was subject to quite significant inflation, and that's before any of this started. So, I mean, I think you know my personal consumption is over 10% inflation right now. And I don't see any prospect of it of it tailing off. And we're beginning to see this being reflected in labor demands in the UK. Although I think that's not quite as strong in the United States, but maybe we'll just be worse hit. Do you talk a bit about international beating the US? I mean, I just wonder, you know, how I mean how does your allocation look now? How many stocks would you normally hold in your portfolio? And how many would be US? How many would be international? And are you being pushed overseas? Um, I think that was, as usual, more a function of the opportunities that we've been seeing and, and where we're seeing value in markets. Um, you know, historically, we've run with 10 to 20 names in the portfolio. We're at the, the high end of that today. And again, that's just, you know, that's more personal preference than, than any scientific calculation. Um, I've learned over the years that you know when we when I start approaching that ten line item, I lose sleep because I feel like we're we're over concentrated. When I start getting north of twenty or too far north of twenty, I start losing sleep because I feel like I don't have my arms around the portfolio as tight as I should be. And so that's kind of been the sweet spot for for us. And that ranges too with the types of names that we own, right? So we try to leverage the work we're doing to get the most bang of it. We're a small team. That's by design. You know, I don't I don't want to manage a large team or a large organization. Um, I like we're, we're like being involved and in the weeds on every position. But that means right we're we're limited in in what we can look at. So we need to, you know, we need to make sure that filter is is working robustly. But that means we'll we'll own names. So we've got uh, you know, we have two dollar stores in the industry. We have two tobacco industry we have two tobacco companies. We've got three airports. You know, you can think of those each as one position because they're they're very obviously very closely related and it's you know the work is the work is the same across the businesses. 
International today probably represents roughly 40% of the portfolio of, of our equity portfolio. And, you know, really that's, again, that's, Steve, that's more a function of mispricing than any top down view of the world. You know, I can tell you, know, a lot of those names ha- happen to be in Latin America. I can tell you that we didn't sit down and, and come up with a, you know, wildly bullish economic scenario for, for Argentina, Mexico, Brazil, or just LATAM in general. But we were finding, you know, a, a very high number of very cheap, very good businesses in those markets. And that's perhaps because nobody else could come up with a good reason, <laughs> a wildly bullish economic scenario for those markets. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not good businesses that can continue to perform well, even in those geographies. I'm sure that's right. I mean, the, the Argentina is a, an interesting country. Not a huge amount of opportunity to invest, though. Uh, it's just difficult to find. I always find it difficult to place to calibrate. I mean, obviously, more stuff in Brazil, but more problems. Um, Mexico, I think, is very interesting. I just, um, I was just at, um, at lunchtime. I went to a presentation of a new, well, it's a startup uh, investment. I do a little bit of startup investing. And it's a manufactured product, and they're looking to penetrate the U.S. market. And they're, you know, I said, so where are you going to make this? And they said, Mexico. And, you know, it's kind of an obvious thing, especially when the dollar is so strong. that It gives a massive, massive tailwind for that, that sort of economy. You've written quite a bit about how you operate as a team, and that's quite unusual because most teams think they've got some sort of secret sauce and they kind of want to keep it secret. I've never met anybody who had any secret sauce. I mean, I always ask people about how they do things and I've never, you know, nobody ever told me, I mean, maybe they have secret sauce and they don't tell you, but, you know, now I have a training business and I go into clients and, you know, you do get a sense, particularly if you're doing a big program, you do get a sense of how they operate. And, you know, most firms have, you know, they've got, different ideas about how they do, but they basically do the same thing, but they don't like to talk about it. But one of the things you um, talk about is, you know, having bull bear and central cases and multiple scenarios for every investment and, and each team member having their own ideas about the value. How does that, I mean, what would you do? You all come in and you say, I think it's worth three and I think it's worth four and I think it's worth five. Oh, let's, let's just take four. I mean, how do you, how do you discuss it? And how do you, how do you form the team opinion? Yeah. I mean, like you said, Steve, there's certainly no secret sauce and it's something that we're, we're constantly refining and, and trying to improve and, and trying to learn from, you know, as many sources and resources as we can. You know, anecdotally, and I'll, I'll go off on a slight tangent here. I had a really interesting conversation. I guess this was pre-COVID. Was sitting down with a firm that made all of their decisions. There, were, you know, everyone at the firm. There were there were four investors at the team at the firm, and they were all invest. They were all portfolio managers. There were no analysts. They all had the same title. And anyone's idea, they all discussed every idea together as a team, but normally there was one person leading the effort on each name, but the discussion was a team, but the decision was never made as a team, right? So, and I thought this was really interesting in that it it was not decision by a committee. So if you presented something and everyone on the team disagreed with you, 
it still went in the portfolio. If you felt strongly about it, it was sized differently, right? If you're the only one supporting the, the name, but it's one portfolio and it, you know, there's, there's you know, three, three, four invest, investment members on there and they debate and they talk through it. Um, there were also no presentations, which I thought was very interesting because they didn't do formal pitches because they felt that in that, you know, by doing that, the best pitch or the best presenter made it into the portfolio, not necessarily the best idea. And I think that's so, I mean, that, there's so much value in, in recognizing that, right? I mean, it's just, you go to an investment conference um, and you know, I'm going to one in a, in a few weeks and, um, you know, you hear, you know, some phenomenal presentations of horrible ideas and you hear, you know, awful presentations of phenomenal ideas. Um, and it's very hard to separate the two when you're sitting there. But what I thought was most interesting from this firm in particular was that when they looked at the performance of the, you know, when they ran an attribution on the fund over time, the best performers over time were those names where they had most disagreement and still put the name in the book, right? And if you think about it, that makes sense, right? If you all agree that it's a great investment, everyone probably else does as well outside of the firm, and it's probably priced as such. But if it's an investment that is you know, drenched in controversy, it's got a higher likelihood of being mispriced. And so you know, I think, I think it was very smart to have to make sure that those names made it into the portfolio, even if everyone disagreed. I wouldn't say that we we go that far, right? So I, I mean, I take input from as many sources as possible, both internal and outside the firm. But ultimately, right, the decision in terms of when, where, and how much we invest rests on my shoulders. Um, so you know, right, right or wrong, I, I take the credit on both sides of those trades. But I, I do think it's important to to think through you know various potential outcomes and not just say. This is what we think the stock is worth, right? Because it's there, there's just too many variables. Um, you know, we try hard to isolate. You know, what are the three or four things that really matter here and that are going to drive value? Because there's hundreds of things and hundreds of questions that you need to ask. But really, there's only three or four that matter. And looking at the hundred can take your eye off of the three or four that you know. If you miss one of those, can be very costly. And so, but just tackling that as a team, talking through it, making sure that we flush out any disagreements so that we at least understand where everyone's coming from and understand the counter point of view, I think is tremendously important. You know, we talk to, while we, you know, we enjoy being kind of apart from consensus and, and outside of major financial centers, I enjoy talking to other investors and both to kind of poke holes in our ideas and to generate new ideas. We pay for one piece of external research. And even though we don't short stocks, the only research we pay for is a firm that provides short recommendations. Um, because I just think there's there's tremendous value in understanding kind of that perspective, you know, on on different industries, whether or not we're involved, it, it may be something we're looking at or it may be something related to um, a portfolio company, or best case scenario, they issue a short recommendation on something that we own. Um, and so we can sort of have an active dialogue and understand you know, where those differences of opinion lie. And what I found over time is more often, um, well, assuming we're just not outright wrong, or they're not outright wrong, more often than not, it's just a difference in time horizon there, right? If you're shorting stocks, your time horizon is by definition, I think, much shorter than uh, you know someone that's with a longer term horizon that's owning owning companies that want to compound over value because time works in your favor. Whereas if you're short a stock, you're 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 on the clock. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the it's interesting. The last um, podcast we did was with Dan McCrum, who was the FT journalist who exposed the wirecard fraud in Germany. And I interviewed um, Southside Research Boutique, who'd issued 40-something research reports on wirecard, every one a sell over a period of six or seven years. And of course, when you're a Southside Boutique and people are paying you to give them short input, you just have to keep, you know, and you and you believe something's a fraud. You have to keep up the program of, of sell notes. But when you're actually short, it's impossible. And I used yeah. to, you know, when I was when I was at the hedge funds, forensic accounting shorts was something that I approached with great trepidation. And I, you know, I've even not shorted things that I knew were fraudulent or likely to go bust, simply because they were so shorted. That, yeah. And if you think something's slightly fraudulent, the chance of it coming up with good results is actually exceptionally high, you know, perversely. And so, and then you get the short squeeze and you get, and it's just too, it's just too painful. You know, I just, yeah. I just got beaten up too many times. I mean, maybe the best example of that that I can remember, Steve, is uh, you mentioned David Einhorn earlier at the start of our show and his book, Fooling Some of the People All the Time on his battles with allied capital, right? That began, I think in the late nineties, maybe early two thousands, right? And ally didn't ultimately file for bankruptcy until the financial crisis and you know after 08 um and david was short that entire time uh, i mean that, that's just a um that, that was a phenomenal book um just kind of to get a, your arms around the extent of what it takes to kind of do that level of diligence and stick with a position and how difficult it is you know knowing when every bone in your body tells you you're right and the market's just telling you you're wrong for 10 years what what i found remarkable about that book was that none of the south side listened to him well, can you imagine, you know, being you're a south side analyst and David Einhorn says he's short of this stock. I mean, I, you know, I would say, I wonder if I could, you know, come around and talk to one of your analysts for half an hour. Would, would they spare the time? And he, 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 they just didn't listen. I mean, I asked them about it. Oh, they just didn't listen. People were not interested in the numbers. People like stories. And this is, you know, I think this is very, very true. One of the things in our forensic accounting course, we look at how many people read the financial statements and you'd be amazed. I mean, the evidence is that just reading the financial statements will give you an information advantage. Now, you know, that sounds like ridiculous, but of course, every investor, every professional investor reads the 10K, but I can guarantee you that they don't. It's a, it is the most amazing thing. But talking about reading, so you started the Broy Hill Book Club which is how I first found you, I think. Why did you do that? Tell us about your, you know, what was the motivation and what's it been like having a book club as a professional investor? Yeah, um, so let me, let me give you a bit of context first there. I was never a big reader. I don't think I picked up my, well, let me clarify. I don't think I voluntarily picked up my first book to read until long after I was already in the you know in the middle of my career post undergraduate studies. It just was not something that not something I ever really enjoyed. And we talked a bit starting off, Steve, about what it was like leaving JPM and and, and moving south, uh, working for a small family office. You know, that was the most exciting thing about that journey for me starting out, you know, while I was still in my twenties was 
having to kind of create and find my mentors. Um, and all of those came in books, right? Like a, a mentorship doesn't have to necessarily be in person. And it's a little bit difficult to be in person when you're in uh, Lenore, North Carolina, finding a, a mentor in the industry. And so I, you know, I began reading everything and anything I could get my hands on and, and started discovering you know, the world of investing outside of JP Morgan, which formed a lot of my thinking to this day. It wasn't until several years after that. I mean, this is, well, I guess the book club we started doing about five years ago. So it was 10 or so years after first joining. I'm not sure what the catalyst was, but I remember one December just deciding that I was going to read a book a week the following year. And that's really how it started. And then at the end of the year, I thought to myself, you know what, maybe I should kind of do something to kind of put this list together and, and share it. And that was how it started. And then once you did it one year, I couldn't necessarily stop doing it. And um, it, it just brings me a lot of joy. Um, the whole, the, the process, um, and I normally do it, you know, we, we changed it a few years ago. We used to do it at the beginning of the year as an annual book club for, you know, selfish reasons, um, just given everything else that's going on at the beginning of the year between you know, earnings reports and, and holidays and um, putting together an annual letter. That was probably not the best time to try to put together a uh, <laughs> try to put together a, a, a list of books comprehensive that we did. So we moved it a few years ago to a summer reading list, which works great because I, I get to spend you know if, if we've got a summer vacation somewhere along the, somewhere in June or July, I spend that week mornings before the family gets up, just kind of reflecting and looking back on everything I've read and sort of put notes together and then just hand it off to the team to actually get it out the door. But it's it's a phenomenal experience. If nothing else, it's been a it's been a great way to meet new people. Um I'm not sure that I knew that, Steve, that that's how you came across us, but I, maybe you wouldn't be surprised. But you know, we've met a lot of folks that um have reached out to us, you know, in, in some form or fashion after reading one of those book clubs. All right, and it's interesting. So you take notes and you do it like a like a, a job, like you do write a review and and take it quite seriously. It, it depends on the book, right? Yeah, I, I think there's different types of reading for different types of book, depending upon what you want to get out of it. You know, there was a year where I focused on speed reading and sort of you know was a hundred percent focused on how fast I could get through things and was timing myself and sort of measuring productivity and it just wasn't enjoyable. Right. right. And it's not, it's nice to be able to speed read an earnings transcript rather than listening to an hour or two hour call, you know, yeah. being able to literally five, 10 minutes glance through and take away the main points. But there's books that are just enjoyable that you want to, you want to read over time and just kind of soak up and sit with. And there's others that well, are not. Um, and then there's books where there are just filled with lessons that either I want to share with the team, either about investing or kind of team performance, culture, et cetera, that I'm, uh, I'm taking notes in the margin more diligently and sort of categorizing and sharing my thinking you know, as I'm doing it. And then you know, I've got those to go back to when we publish the, the full list at the end of the year. And you're reading physical books then, not Kindle? It's a variety, right? So, so my strong preference, all else being equal, is I love a hardcover in my hands. Um, mm -hmm. I like being able to scribble in the margins. I like being able to underline. I like being able to sort of create a index on the back cover or inside cover of the book. That said, Kindle for note taking can't be beat. So I've got a. We can keep out on this forever, Steve, and maybe this will be a, another call in the future. But like, I've got all of my Kindle highlights export to a database 
where I keep all of my notes on books I'm reading, as well as all the research we're doing on the team, et cetera. And so all that is sort of automatically exported and categorized and indexed. And so Kindle's really nice for that. But if it's a book I really enjoy, I'll still I'll buy a hard copy as well. And then Audible is just, um, I can't listen to books or podcasts for that matter, unless I'm traveling for some reason. And so um, books on Audible and podcasts are relegated to things I'm listening to in the car. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I find that I I haven't I don't really like the idea of listening to a book, and I prefer to listen to podcasts. So I've not tried uh, an Audible. Although, funnily enough, when I um I was asked would I record the Audible version of my own book, and I thought, oh, don't be it'll just take forever. Just get somebody to do it. And I hadn't realized the process is that they get people to audition by reading the preface. And I mean, they were god awful. I had to listen. I had to choose, and they were all awful. <laughs> Except one person was actually quite cheerful. And so I said, "Well, let's just have the cheerful person." They've got an American accent. So I, I thought, if I read it, then nobody's going to understand it. So I thought, "Well, let's get these, this person." And of course, when they actually did the recording, they weren't quite as cheerful. I think, as you know, obviously, <laughs> I'm, I'm more palatable one page than 200 but which I, is perfectly understandable yeah so tell me one thing that i always ask people to recommend is a book that they love or a book that they would give to somebody who is wanting to become an investor i mean you've probably got a few recommendations but give us a couple that you've really liked yeah so that's a tough one right because I, I well one I'd love, I'm an over-gifter when it comes to book. I mean, I would say just about every other thing I read, somebody comes to mind and I send them a copy of that book. It's just, uh, it's another thing that brings me joy. So it's tough to make, it's tough for me to make a blanket recommendation without knowing who that, you know, personally, who that recommendation is for. The younger younger you going to North Carolina, what would you pick up in the airport? So younger me, let me let me give you a couple. Let me give let me give you a couple. One of my favorites of all time, and and it's a I think the best historic example of blending creative thinking with scientific processes and design would be Walter Isaacson's Leonardo da Vinci biography. And I would also say I would read anything Isaacson has ever written. It's phenomenal and would be near the top of my list. But his account of sort of da Vinci's life and accomplishments and and sort of tying that together with the value of having what, you know, what we would call a a childlike curiosity or or a beginner's mind is just a phenomenal, that just brought me so much joy. I would probably have started reading along those lines more a little bit more science for perspective as well then so i would read anything by or or about richard feynman for both the knowledge base and humor that comes with that category and i would put um eo wilson in, in that bucket as well he's written some phenomenal stuff younger me probably needed to learn a little bit more about decision making and human psychology so some recent favorites there Obvious one, Daniel Kahneman, anything he's written, Thinking Fast and Slow, kind of being the primary source there. The book Super Fat Forecasting, Phil Tetlock and, and company was phenomenal. And then you, you could pair that with Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets. And then uh, maybe slightly more off the run. Um, not sure if you're familiar with uh, the work of Peter Bevlin, Steve, but 
Seeking Wisdom, I think, was the first one he wrote. A Few Lessons from Sherlock Holmes is another. Um, and I would also add any Sherlock Holmes-related or, or original stories are some of my favorites, too. And there's phenomenal linkages there to, let's see, sort of investigative work to the type of investigative work required for investors. And then the other one that Bevlin did was A Few Lessons for Investors and Managers from Buffett. And then maybe, well, particularly today, I'd say, you know, how we started this conversation, I'd say history is more important um, and understanding history is probably more important than it's ever been. Um, so some of my favorites there, Kinderberg's Manias, Panics and Crashes, uh, Charles McKay's Extraordinary Popular Delusions and Madness of Crowds. And I've got to mention, since uh, we just chatted last week, Ed Chancellor's Devil Take the Hindmost. I don't know if you know Ed, but he he's another uh, he's I guess somewhere in your backyard, Steve. He may be he may be a good addition for uh, for this show at some point. Ed's I think one of the sharpest financial historians in the business, and well, also wrote in addition to his work in financial history, what I would call two of the most underappreciated books on investing that I would put on my top ten for any investor. And this I guess these are the only actual finance books. Um, dedicated financial books I'm, I'm mentioning here. The first was Capital Account, um, which probably, well, I think you had, uh, I think you had one of the guys from Marathon on, or one or, or, or more guys from Marathon on, on, on the show, haven't you? Yeah. So um, Edward Chancellor is a friend of Russell Napier, um, who's a friend of mine. And Russell, um, I did a podcast with Russell and Jeremy Hosking, who was one of the marathon partners, right. and then he split up and he set up on his own Hosking company. So I did the podcast um, two or three podcasts ago with Russell and Jeremy because they're old friends. And we were trying to do the capital account, the capital cycle in an age of financial repression, because obviously, right. you know, the in an inflationary environment, it's going to become much more important. And Russell was sick of the sight of me because that week we did the, we recorded the podcast on the Thursday. We had a drink on the Friday, and on the Saturday I went to the lecture that Edward gives on Russell's course. Russell does a course called "The History of Financial Markets," and he's now it's now an online version, but he does it in person. So I'm going for the full course in October. But he said, "Oh, you should come and listen to Edward explain the capital cycle." Because obviously we just done the podcast, and then on the Monday I took him to see David Einhorn. So we had okay. uh, we had um, quite a, a few days together. But yeah, those books were magnificent. And uh, I mean, funnily enough, I know the, the people that are still at Marathon. I also I I also know them. Um, and you know, they're very very smart in investors. And I mean, very long. I, I think those books today are just, you know, could not have, you know, you could not pick a better time to read those books, just given the similarities. Like the first book, which Ed reminded me that he had sent me a copy of Capital Account, which I think now sells for like a thousand bucks because it's out of print, maybe like a decade ago. So he was quick to remind me of that and, uh, and, and point out that if he was smart, he would have been dripping that, those into the market right over, 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 you know, talking about Capital Account and, and managing supply side. But, you know, Capital Account, as you know, covers the period, right? Marathon's letters from the late 90s to the early 2000s, which I think are a phenomenal analog for what we're seeing right now. And so you know, if you could get your hands on a copy of that, I would highly recommend it. The next best thing would be capital returns 
I think it's called, which is the the second version of that book, which covers you know, the period from um, you know leading up to and after the housing crisis. Um, so you've got like two financial bubbles building and bursting, right? Like you've got data and anecdotes on them in real time in both those books that are just, um, I think they're phenomenal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting um, thing that people haven't paid more attention to. I mean, I, I thought that it was really widely known and understood. And um, I've written about it a couple of times. And people said, oh, man, that's fascinating. I said, well, I, I just assumed that everybody had read that stuff and then realized it's a lot easier to forecast the supply than demand. So, you know, everybody spends all their time thinking. And I mean, I guess this comes more naturally to me because my background, when I started, I was a transport analyst on the south side. So in the transport sector, it's all about how much supply is coming. And all you need, you know, that's what you watch when you know there's too much supply. But obviously, it's very um, applicable to lots and lots of industries. And it's strange that people don't pay more attention to it because there's, you know, there's no question that it's an, you know, a very, very effective approach. Listen, um, thank you for that. I don't think we've had as many book recommendations as, as that. I'm looking forward to the web developer managing to fit them all on the page because we've got a new website and um, the technology of doing the pages is is much more difficult than it used to be. So um, she's going to be thanking you. <laughs> you're lucky that you're in um, that little town in North Carolina. I read about it. I thought it was a very cruel comment on Google. Somebody, somebody who lived there, I looked it up. It said um, 18,000 people, low cost of living is great, mostly friendly people. I thought everybody in the South was friendly, mostly friendly people and good opportunities for work. There isn't much going on after 9 p.m. or on Sunday, which is obviously good for if you want to read, right? Listen, I'm looking forward to my next visit to the Blue Ridge Mountains. We had a very good time last time. I've I've been making all these new wonderful friends in the United States and, um, and lots of people in your neck of the woods. So I'm not going to make it this summer because we've got a trip in the west of the country, but hopefully another time. I really, really appreciate your taking the time and you know sharing your experience and and you know you've got a very very unusual role because there aren't many people that think twenty stocks is too many and I'm you know I'm completely with you because I think you know people overvalue having diversification and once you get fifteen stocks you've got all the diversification you need really and. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward, hopefully we'll manage to get a drink in person. You should come to the UK because there's loads of cheap stocks here. <laughs> well, I'll, I may take you up on that, Steve, and we'd, we'd love to host you um, whenever you get back out to the East Coast here in the States. So please let me know. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Well, that really got me thinking about whether it's better to be based at the heart of the action in London or New York, or whether distance gives you a better perspective. Obviously, there are lots of advantages of being in the countryside and Zoom is now a great leveler. You can easily attend conferences and many company meetings take place over Zoom. For me, London's still the greatest city in the world and I can't see myself moving. And after listening to Chris's extensive book suggestions, it also got me thinking about whether I'm reading widely enough. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please let me know your feedback.